Ruth chapter 4, hear the word of the Lord. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Machlon. And Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Machlon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the, women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today, that's how chapter 3 ended. Today, we were left hanging on what would happen when? Today. And now, today has arrived. But let's review how we got up to today. Chapter 1, three dead men, three widow women, 
two of those widow women returning from the land of Moab to the land of bread, Bethlehem, the house of bread. One of them had left the house of bread full, and she complained that she had come back empty. And she said, don't call me Naomi, that is pleasant, call me Mara, call me bitter, because I went away full and I came back empty. The other widow woman who came back, she was her Moabite daughter-in-law. The three men who had died were Elimelech, my God is king, and the two sons who had married Moabite women. And one of those widows went back with her mother-in-law, Ruth, went back with pleasant Naomi, who preferred to be called bitter. And then we have, in chapter 2, we have 30 pounds of grain, where Ruth took it into her hands to try to provide for these women so they wouldn't starve to death. And she went out and she picked up scraps after the harvesters, and she was able to get together 30 pounds of grain, but not on her own. She had significant help from a man named Boaz. And Boaz was a kinsman of Elimelech, my God is king. And he had favor on Ruth and had favor on Naomi. So now, at the end of chapter 2, we know that the widows are not going to starve. And then chapter 3. Chapter 3 was all about human initiative. Naomi takes it into her own hands to try to provide a husband for Ruth. And then they have this very risky plan that takes place in the middle of the night, in the darkness on a threshing floor, where Naomi takes matters into her hands, and then Ruth takes matters into her hands, and offers herself in marriage to Boaz. And then Boaz, very impressed with the faithfulness of this young woman to her mother-in-law, takes matters into his hands, and says, I will deal with the matter today. But there's a complication right at the end of chapter 3. Boaz says, yes, it's true, I am a kinsman. But there's another kinsman who is actually closer than I am, and he has first rights of redemption. But I will take care of it, and then Naomi go, or Ruth goes home, and Naomi says, don't worry, my daughter, he will take care of the matter when? Today. And we're left hanging. Now we're to act for. And true to his word, Boaz goes directly to the city gates. The cities did not tend to have much space inside the cities. They were rather dense. But the city gate uh, generally had a place where transactions could take place, where legal matters could be ratified. And that's what he did. He went right to the city gate. And for the second time in our story, as he went to the city gate, the other kinsmen just happened to be walking by. We saw this in the case of Ruth. She went out to glean, and she just happened to find herself in the field belonging to Boaz. So here, he goes by, and lo and behold, the other kinsman just happens to be coming by. And so he says to him, sit down, my friend. And so he sits down, and then he impanels a a, a body of witnesses, ten of the elders, and it's obvious that he is going to do some sort of transaction. Now, the narrator has saved a detail for us. He's a master storyteller, or she's a master storyteller. We don't know who wrote this. And saved a detail for us about a piece of property. This piece of property has not been mentioned up to this point, and it is a great surprise to us, and it confuses us 
the readers of the story because we understood that Boaz was going to take care of the redemption of Ruth and Naomi. And then he goes to the, the, the city gate and he's talking about redeeming a piece of property. And now we're quite confused. One, from where did this piece of property come and why are we learning about it only now? And two, Boaz, remember the women. You're not supposed to be making uh, real estate deals now. You're supposed to be taking care of these these women, these these widow ladies. And so we are left quite confused. And he presents it to the the other kinsmen. And the other kinsmen uh, sees it as quite an opportunity. And also Boaz sets up a little bit of competition, doesn't he? You know how when there's greater demand for something, you want to make sure you don't miss out. And he says, you, I just want to tell you about it so so that you can redeem it. But if you don't want to redeem it, tell me. You're first in line, and if you won't redeem it, I will. So he sets up the competition with this, this man. And the man finds it to be a great opportunity. Think about this. He gets to redeem this property, so he, he spends some money on this property. And it may be that he would have responsibility for Naomi as well. But uh, Naomi didn't have any male sons left. And so when she dies, then he gets to keep all of the property. And she's also a widow, so she probably doesn't eat much. And she also probably won't last too long. So even if he has to take care of Naomi, this is not going to be an expensive proposition for him. He sees it as a good business deal, and he says, I'll redeem it. And then Boaz says, by the way, in the day that you redeem the land, and therefore also Naomi, although he doesn't say that, you also need to redeem Ruth. Now, the, the role of the kinsman is, is not described in great detail. Uh, there are various things, as we've already seen, that the kinsman was supposed to do. And this situation is never, never covered in Old Testament law. But what it looks like is, this role of the kinsman had been expanded. And it was quite vast. And one of the responsibilities was to make sure that the family line did not die out. And so... Here we have a situation where there's a piece of land he wants to redeem. He would receive also Naomi, but Naomi was too old to have children at that point. And so that that redemption responsibility was passed on to the next generation to Ruth the Moabite, as he calls her here. And so he would be required then to try to have children with her so that so that the name of the deceased would not perish. Look at verse 5. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also require Ruth, acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Do you remember the two problems of chapter 1? The widows were in danger of dying of starvation, and the men, all three of them, had died And it looked like their lineage had died as well. Their posterity had died. And that was a tragedy in Israel that a a line should die out. And so this was the concern of the kinsman. To do anything he could to make sure that, that the line would not be extinguished. And so he would be required to take Ruth and to try to have children in the firstborn son of that union 
would inherit that piece of property that he bought in that redemption act. Now he starts calculating. And he thinks, this is a different situation. So I buy the piece of property, and then I lose it. Now, of course, it would be his son who would get that piece of property, but he would need to maintain not only Naomi and not only Ruth, but also this firstborn son who would claim that piece of property for himself, and it wouldn't be shared with this man's other children, and there might be other children to that union. And so, all of a sudden, this is becoming an expensive proposition. And he simply says, I cannot do it. He does not say, I will not do it. He says, I cannot. And it looks like what he's saying is, I just can't afford this. This all of a sudden has gotten too expensive for me and and I need to tap out. I cannot afford to do this. And he says, so I give to you in the presence of these witnesses. And it looks like a big crowd had gathered. He impaneled ten elders, but it looks like the townspeople wanted to see what was going on here as well. He says, in the presence of these witnesses, he says, take my right of redemption yourself. And twice he says, I cannot redeem it. Then Boaz followed the legal custom of the time. And it's clear that this was written some time after the time because the author had to explain the custom of removing the sandal to, uh, to affect a transaction. Now, we don't know, that's the only place we have any reference to this in the Bible, of removing the sandal to seal a transaction. But you can imagine how that would work, right? If it's just a handshake, somebody could deny it later. Oh, I didn't say that. I didn't do that. But if somebody's walking around with only one sandal, and the other person has the sandal, well, there's a, there's a physical piece of evidence there in addition to the witnesses. So this is, this is really very practical. Very practical. And so he follows through. And notice why he does it. He declares it. He he declares in legal terms. In in verse 9, Boaz says to the elders and to all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Machlon. And Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Machlon, I have bought to be my wife. And here's the purpose. To perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. And then the people responded. People were at the gate, the elders, and they said, we're witnesses. And then they went on. They went on to bless Naomi and to bless Boaz. They say in verse 11, we are witnesses. And then they say, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. They bless her, but they bless her in the most exalted of terms. They bless her and they put her up there with the two mothers of the nation of Israel. They name the two wives of Jacob. Jacob's other name was Israel. And so the whole nation of Israel is descended from Jacob and these two wives and these two wives' 
It turns out these two wives maids as well, but, but they were the two mothers of Israel, the two legitimate wives of Jacob. And so they, they say to Ruth, about Ruth, the Moabitess, they say, may you be like the two mothers of our country. And then they were from the tribe of Judah, and they were from a certain clan, and uh, the clan of Perez, and they say, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar, who by the way was also a foreigner, who became a mother to the the tribe of Judah, may you be like Tamar, uh, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. What's going on here? Do you remember the the question all through this this uh, this story? And it was asked three times about Ruth. When Boaz first sees her, he asks the question, Whose is this young woman? To whom does she belong? And then when he, he wakes up and finds her at his feet at the threshing floor, he says to her, Who are you? And then she goes home after that, that night, and Naomi's waiting, and when Naomi greets her, she asks her the same question. Who are you? And that's the question of this, this story. Who is Ruth? Is Ruth perpetually the outsider? Is Ruth the one from, from the Moabite clan that was excluded from ever being part of Israel? Or is Ruth the outsider, the foreigner, the widow? Can Ruth become part of Israel? Can Ruth actually become a mother in Israel? And you see, this blessing is, is the, the final inclusion of Ruth. Throughout the story, she's taken one step, one step, one step closer and closer and closer to being included in the people of God. And now the whole people of God publicly embrace her and bless her as one of their own, and not only one of their own, but as one who will become a mother in Israel. Now, the events for which we have waited for for much of this book happen in verse 13. And there's something quite shocking here. We have been waiting and waiting and waiting for Boaz and Ruth to get married, haven't we? And we've been hoping that they would be able to have children. Now, she wasn't able to have children in her first marriage, so it's not guaranteed that she'll be able to have children in her second. There may have been some problem there. But look at verse 13, what the narrator does to us. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. That's it. That's how he describes the marriage. And the consummation of the marriage. And the bearing of son. So they got married, and they consummated the marriage, and the Lord gave him a son. And then they disappear. They disappear. They're exited off of the stage. And we are left thinking, narrator, you really blew that conclusion. We've been really going with you. And you have been building this thing up for, for more than two chapters. And then you do that to us? What are you doing here? And it makes us wonder that maybe this was a head fake. Maybe, maybe this, this book isn't about Ruth and Boaz after all. And as it turns out, I hate to break this to you, it's not. It's a love story. 
But it's not the kind of love story that we thought it was going to be. There is really no indication of romantic interest in this book between Boaz and Ruth. They are models of love and models of faithfulness, but whether or not they were romantically involved, I hope so. But really, that's not the emphasis of the story. But it is a love story after all. And once the author has has whisked Boaz and Ruth off stage after they performed their part, we get to the second conclusion. The first conclusion was the marriage and the son being born, and now we get to the second conclusion. And in the second conclusion, Naomi takes center stage. And the women of Bethlehem interpret the meaning of the events, beginning in verse 14. They say to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to Him. What do they say? They rejoice because they say, God has provided for you a Redeemer. And this Redeemer will nourish you and take care of you in your old age. And this Redeemer will restore life to you. And God has given you better than what the ideal in Israel is. The ideal in Israel was to have seven sons. And they said, this daughter-in-law of yours is better to you than seven sons. The ideal in Israel, and why is she better than seven sons? Because it says, and here is the shocker of this second conclusion, because she is the one who has given birth to Him. Who is the Him in this context? It is the Redeemer. You see, we thought all through this story that Boaz was the Redeemer. But now we find out that Naomi's Redeemer is not Boaz. It's the son that was born to Ruth. And then look what happens here. In verse 16, Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. We need to spend a little time on that because if you were here for chapter 1, you will recall that there was a strange, unusual word that was used in chapter 1 in verse 5. It says, And both Mahlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And we noted at that point that instead of the normal word for sons, it's the word that we translated boys. She was left without her two Boys. And now we go to chapter 4, and we look at verse 16, and it says, Naomi took the boy. Naomi took the boy and laid him on her lap. Uh, another translation would be laid her on his, her, laid him on her chest. And this translation says, and became his nurse. A stronger translation would be, and became his foster mother. 
So, she lost her boys, and now she has her boy, and she takes her boy, and she puts her boy on her chest, and she becomes a foster mother to the boy. And that's made even stronger by the fact that Ruth has been pushed out of the story, and Naomi is the one holding the boy. And just so you know, we're not reading too much into this. This is exactly how the women interpreted this story. Look at verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to whom? Naomi. A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed, which sounds like the word for servant. Perhaps because he was going to be the one who served Naomi in her old age. It was possible that Boaz and Naomi were similar age. He wasn't going to be the one, but Obed, the servant, the boy who was born in Bethlehem. He was the one who redeemed Naomi. And he was the one that redeemed the lost line of Elimelech. So that they wouldn't disappear from the earth. So we have the redemption of Ruth, but we also have the redemption of Naomi. And now we come full circle with Naomi. She went away full, she says. And now she said in chapter 1, she came back empty. And now her arms are full again. She's holding her boy on her chest. And now we think we've gotten to the conclusion of the story, don't we? He already gave us one misdirection. And now we think we're on to him, and now we say, okay, it is a love story, but it's not love a love story about Boaz and Ruth. It's a love story about God and Naomi. Because all through this story, often behind the scenes, by orchestrating events in a certain way, God was quietly and persistently and relentlessly pursuing Naomi and bringing her back not only to Bethlehem, but bringing her back to Himself. So it is a love story after all. It's just not the kind of love story we thought it was. But not even that is the conclusion. The author has another surprise for us. They named him Obed, verse 17, He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, this looks like kind of anticlimactic, and and this is hard for us as uh, Occidental people to go into a genealogy, to end a story with a genealogy. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. That's not how we would end a novel, is it? But this is the third conclusion, the final conclusion, and the biggest one. Because, do you remember at the very beginning... I used a word called inclusio. And an inclusio is a bracketing. An inclusio is a bookend. And the the author placed one bookend at the very beginning, actually placed several, and then he built the whole story, 
And then he closes it with the same bookend. You remember, boys and boy. But he does it in even grander scale. Look at the very first words of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled. And then it says there was a man named Elimelech. My God is king. And that almost seems to be mocking. Because in the days when the judges ruled, it was chaos. And and exactly what they didn't have in the days when the judges ruled was a king who could put things in order. And, and then Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, he comes on the scene and what happens to him? He dies. So, in the days when the judges ruled, when they, they desperately needed a king, my God is king, steps onto the stage, and then he dies. That's how the story begins. And then the story ends with this. Obed was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And what was David? A king. And not just a king, he was the king that the people needed. This is brilliant storytelling, isn't it? In the days when the judges ruled, God did all of this so that a couple generations later, the people would have what they desperately needed. They would have a king. Now let's look at these three conclusions. Because three, these three conclusions give us the three messages of this story. The first conclusion, the outsider is now part of the people of God, Ruth. The outsider, the foreigner, can be brought near. The second story, the estranged, the embittered believer, that's Naomi, could be reconciled and brought into fullness in her relationship with God once again. And the people of God who were living in chaos could be brought under order and under security and safety because God provided for them a king. And these three, these three situations move us to ask what our situation is before God. Because we could be in any of these situations ourselves. We could be far from God, not knowing who God is, needing to know about God, needing to be brought near, needing to be included in the people of God and welcomed into His family. Or we could be believers for whom life has just not turned out how we hoped it would. And rather than than feeling full and being full in our relationship with, with God, we're, we're embittered against Him. And we're, we're angry because He has not done in our lives what, what we hoped He would do, like Naomi. Or we might be like the people of God in general. We say, yes, we're of the people of God, but we're making up our own rules. We're, we're doing things the way we want to do. We're being our own little kings and queens. Whatever might be our situation this morning, we need to see that this book of Ruth reminds us that God pursues us. He comes after us. 
in whatever our situation we might be. If we're the, the one who is far from God, knowing little of Him, He comes to us and He draws us near. If we're the, the professing believer that, that has a bitter spirit because of how things have gone in life, he, he pursues us as well. And if we are professing believers whose lives are out of order, He keeps relentlessly coming after us as well. And He is determined to show to us His steadfast love. We have seen that all through this story. In all of the chapters, we have this word, chesed, the Hebrew word, the steadfast love of the Lord. And that's what we see in this book. The steadfast love of the Lord pursuing everyone. And that's what happens with us as well. The steadfast love of the Lord comes after us. And thanks be to God, we cannot escape it. He comes after us and comes after us and comes after us. And how does He come after us? Well, the primary, the most exalted, the most amazing way that He came after us was through a boy that was born in Bethlehem. That's right, a boy was born in Bethlehem. And that boy turned out to be God's King. Now, we were shocked in chapter 1, the first verses of chapter 1, when my God is King died so suddenly, we wanted to cry out and say, now that's not right. If His name is my God is King, certainly God would look after Him. Certainly He wouldn't die off so tragically, would He? But we find that the story of this boy who was born in Bethlehem, who was and is God's king, that he as well died. And that is the primary and the the most exalted manifestation of God's persistent hesed, God's persistent love. It comes after us by coming into the world as a boy who was born in Bethlehem, who grew up to be a man, who is the king, and who was proclaimed by God's people as king. And then he was impaled on a cross where he paid for the sins of all who trust in him. That's God's hesed. That's God's persistent love. That's God's love that comes after us, wherever we might be. That's the way that we are brought back to God. If we're outsiders if we're estranged, if we're chaotic, God's love in the boy from Bethlehem, the king who was crucified, that's where we see God's love. That's how we find our way back to Him. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for this fascinating book that takes us in one direction and then leads us in another. And we thank You that it leads us right up to Jesus. Obed's descendant, David's descendant, the King who was crucified to bring rebellious people back to You, to bring the foreigner in, to bring the embittered into fullness again, to bring the chaotic into order. And I pray for all of us, O God, that You would show us Your King, that He would be our King through faith, and that we would be included, filled up, and ordered in our lives under King Jesus, the boy who was born in Bethlehem, the king who was crucified, 
and rose again. And we pray in His name. Amen.